Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, January the 27th, 2023. A couple of weeks ago, I did a really fun show uh, with a historian, um, Frank Costigliola, uh, who has written a biography of George Kennan, an American diplomat who lived to the age of 101 and was the diplomat who in many ways brought the Cold War to a head, or at least uh, bore the Cold War in his theories of the Soviet Union and as Mr. X, uh, the book that Costio, uh, Costia, Cost, Costigliola, a hard name to pronounce, uh, wrote, uh, was Kennan, A Life Between Worlds. Um, we are in an odd way uh, getting to the end of the Cold War with another American diplomat called George and another uh, diplomat who lived, I think, to the age of 101. Uh, George Schultz was uh, the Secretary of State uh, under Ronald Reagan for both terms. And uh, he lived to 101, remarkable man like George Kennan. And I'm thrilled that there's a new book, a biography out about him with my guest today, Philip Taubman. Um, in the Nation's Surface, The Life and Times of George uh, Schultz. Um, I'm thrilled that uh, Philip Taubman is easier to pronounce than the uh, biographer of the book about Kennan. Um, Philip, would it be fair to say that Schultz brought the Cold War to an end? Is he the other end of the bookend when it comes to George Kennan, uh, George Kennan, from George Kennan to George Schultz, the beginning and end of the Cold War? Is that, if, if there's one thing to summarize his life in terms of uh, service to his nation, it's bringing the Cold War to an end? Indeed, uh, and that's a... I knew Kennan a little bit uh, in my days as a New York Times reporter, uh, and it was indeed George Schultz uh, who helped guide Ronald Reagan uh, through the diplomatic uh, strategy and negotiations that wound down the Cold War, uh, and all that was left was for George H.W. Bush and his Secretary of State, Jim Baker, to uh, completely end it. So Schultz actually played a pivotal role, and, and I think one of the things that's not fully understood, and I hope I uh, highlight that in my book, is uh, the uh, indispensable role that he played. Uh, as uh, Mikhail Gorbachev said, uh, and I use this uh, to open up the book, uh, without Reagan, the Cold War would not have ended, but without Schultz, Reagan would not have ended the Cold War. Yeah, it's a nice way of, uh, of, of bringing this thing to uh, a conclusion, Philip. Um, as I said, uh, the, 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 the Kennan book is called A Life Between Worlds, and, and Frank argues in his biography that Kennan was caught between the United States and Russia. Um, it seems to me that Schultz was a much more straightforward American, uh, a man who spent most of his life 
uh, either in his nation's formal service or uh, working in private corporations. Tell me a little bit about the man. So yeah, you're quite right. Um, he came to the job of Secretary of State uh, with actually, you know, little preparation in terms of understanding and dealing with international relations and national security issues. Uh, you know, he grew up in the New York City area. His father worked down on Wall Street. He went to uh, prep school in New England, Princeton University, and then uh, moved into the field of economics, which is uh, his specialty was labor economics. Uh, and uh, before he entered government service, he was a professor at MIT and then later at the University of Chicago. Uh, so, uh, you know, he came to Washington uh, from outside the sort of Eastern establishment, uh, first in the Nixon administration, where he served in three cabinet posts, and then most importantly for Reagan. And I, I think the fact that he didn't grow up uh, in Washington, was not invested in the Cold War doctrines, helps explain uh, why he was able to look at the conflict with the Soviet Union a bit differently from most people in Washington. What would he or what did he make of um, of Kenin's original thesis about Russia as this um, inevitably uh, colonial or imperial power? Um, what was his take on post-Stalin Russia? I know that he was Secretary of State both under and drop off, and then, as as you mentioned, um, under uh, under under Gorbachev, who was a quite different character from Stalin. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Schultz, I think, subscribed to the theory or doctrine of containment, which was, uh, you know, authored by George Kennan uh, at the time he was ambassador in Moscow, and that doctrine essentially called for, as the word would suggest, containing. Uh, the Soviet Union, uh, limiting its ability to expand its influence militarily, economically, and diplomatically around the world. So, you know, George Shultz uh, bought into the basic Cold War notion that the United States and Soviet Union were adversaries. Uh, but he also saw the potential to improve relations, put them on a steadier footing. Uh, and he was very concerned as was Ronald Reagan, uh, with the possibility of nuclear war. Uh, and so, you know, when Schultz became Secretary of State, if you wanted to describe his attitude as he came into the job, it was a bit of a split personality. On one hand, uh, he believed that the United States had to oppose the Soviet Union, build up its military. Uh, on the other hand, unlike a lot of people in Washington, he felt there was a path forward uh, to try to ease east-west tensions uh, and try to come to nuclear weapons agreements that would actually reduce the number of nuclear warheads on each side. Philip, I've recently been uh, rereading uh, C. Wright Mills's The Power Elite, a book about what, at least in Mills's view in the 1950s, was the elite that ran America, a non-ideological elite that seamlessly moved between business and uh, government. Um, it seems to me that, in a way, Schultz was an example of that. He wasn't a particularly ideological fellow, was he? Even if he worked in the Nixon and Reagan administrations, he was a 
a centrist. Would it be fair to call him a, a technocrat in his view of the world? Well, he was certainly a centrist. Uh, and he was, as you say, he was non-ideological. Uh, he was uh, bipartisan in spirit. Uh, he was a very loyal Republican, uh, at least until Donald Trump became president. But, uh, you know, when he stepped into the Nixon administration, uh, he was regarded as a very loyal supporter of Republican policies. And throughout his life, right up till the end, he remained a, a deep and uh, fervent believer in uh, market economy and capitalism. I think uh, the difference uh, that Schultz brought to Washington compared to a lot of people around President Reagan uh, was that he believed the Soviet Union was a failing state. Interesting to look back on that. I was based in Moscow myself for three plus years as a New York Times reporter. It didn't take long for any of us in Moscow in the journalistic corps to realize that the Soviet Union was really a backward country economically with, you know, an arsenal of nuclear weapons. Schultz had detected that in some visits he made during the Nixon administration when he was labor secretary and treasury secretary. Uh, and he shared that view with Reagan, which was interesting, you know, that the Soviet Union could not sustain the kind of military buildup that it was investing in. So he came to Washington with a sense that there might be an incentive for the Kremlin to try to ease tensions. Here we have a photo for people watching of Schultz with Reagan. He had a, I mean, Reagan was always a hard man to get close to. He was very good at betraying himself in the media as a warm man, but I think in private he was rather cold. But he was also in his own way ideological and perhaps in some ways inheriting some of the ideological legacy uh, of, uh, of the new right within the Republican Party. What was Schultz's view of Reagan, both as a man and as a thinker? So <clears throat> I think he... Uh respected Reagan as a, as a thinker, at least on economic issues when he came into office, when Schultz came into office. The two had met when Reagan was governor of California and Schultz was living on the Stanford campus. Uh, and uh, Reagan came over for dinner. Schultz invited a, a you know, group of esteemed market economists, including Milton Friedman, they grilled Reagan about economic policy issues. His answers struck Schultz as quite uh, informed and, and sophisticated. Uh, but he really didn't know Reagan personally when Reagan asked him to come uh, to be Secretary of State. And he could only uh, make certain assumptions about Reagan's views about the Cold War based on Reagan's rhetoric, which uh, in Reagan's first term was extremely belligerent about the Soviet Union the phrase, the evil empire, communism will end up on the ash heap of history. These were, you know, some of Reagan's language. And Reagan was also investing heavily in a military buildup in the Defense Department. So Schultz bought into that, uh, but it took him a long time uh, to get the one-on-one uh, -on -one time with the president to understand, first of all, that they actually shared a common belief that the Cold War should be wound down. Secondly, uh, <clears throat> that Reagan was willing to make a commitment to that. But I'll tell you, the first couple of years as Secretary of State were really tough. 
uh, Schultz ran into a buzzsaw of opposition among hardliners around Reagan. And Reagan, as you said, uh, was aloof in some ways. He seemed disengaged. And as uh, fierce battles went on within the administration, with Schultz pushing to ease tensions and others trying to thwart him, Reagan seemed indifferent to all of that. So it took him really, uh, you know, almost the full first term before he really established a close rapport with the president. He certainly was persistent. Um, some of his foes, I don't know if they were bureaucratic or ideological, were, you note in the book, Caspar Weinberger, and also Jean Kirkpatrick, the ideological mother, perhaps, of conservatism um, in, in the Republican Party, um, an inheritor of, of Goldwater's ideas. To what extent were Schultz's conflicts within the administration that you write about in the book, to what extent were they ideological as opposed to bureaucratic? I know that he wasn't particularly close in particular to Gene Kirkpatrick. I think it was, it was both. Uh, it was certainly a degree of ideological uh, conflict because people like Kirkpatrick, Weinberger, the defense secretary, William Casey, the CIA director, William Clark, the national security advisor, they were all hardened cold warriors committed to the notion that it was, uh, you know, a, a, a kind of permanent state of cold war with the Soviet Union. Schultz didn't agree with that. But there was also turf war that is typical in Washington. And interestingly, you know, at times he clashed with Weinberger over the use of force uh, in various places with Schultz advocating force, uh, for example, sending the Marines to Lebanon uh, to try to keep the peace as the Israelis were plowing across Lebanon, uh, trying to evict the Palestinian Liberation Organization. So he and Weinberger clashed frequently, and uh, you can see in a diary that was kept by Schultz's executive assistant, which, by the way, is a remarkable Cold War document that uh, gives an unvarnished blow-by-blow -blow account of all of this inside uh, uh, fighting that was going on. You can see in there how Schultz would go meet with Weinberger, go to the White House to try to meet with Reagan get frustrated, run into a, a blockade against him and come back to the State Department and confide in his executive assistant how angry and frustrated he was. Yeah, it's a remarkable story. But does it reflect well in perhaps in a way in Reagan in that one of his achievements was to stand above it all and let the Kirkpatricks and the Weinbergers and the Schultz fight with one another? And ultimately, it made Reagan look even the better. I suppose you could look at it that way. I mean, I think, and one of the arguments I make in the book is that uh, it's clear Reagan came into office with an intention to uh, confront the Soviet Union, build up America's military, uh, and then uh, look for ways uh, to negotiate. The problem was he didn't seem to know how to get to the, to the end game of negotiation. Uh, and so it took Schultz to help Reagan figure out how to do that. And of course, uh, it took Mikhail Gorbachev uh, coming to power in the Kremlin and appointing Edward Shevardnadze as his foreign minister. It really was the four of them working in consort that uh, 
wound down the Cold War. But, you know, I think if you look back at history and you look back at the record, it's pretty clear that absent Schultz, Reagan may never have gotten to the stage of serious diplomacy with the Kremlin. In retrospect, Philip, I mean, it's always easy, of course, to to speak retrospectively. But perhaps one weakness of American foreign policy at this period was to was to put all our eggs into the Gorbachev basket. We've done a number of shows on Gorbachev about how he was so popular in the West and increasingly distrusted and disliked in Russia itself, in the Soviet Union. Was Schultz aware of this, that Gorbachev was increasingly becoming uh, a figment of, of the West's imagination and more and more isolated from everyone and everything in the Soviet Union itself. Did he concern himself? You know, not... Did he give any thought to um, a Russia post-Soviet Union? Yeah, I think he was not as aware of, of the decline of Gorbachev's uh, popularity uh, in the Soviet Union. I could see that firsthand living and working there. When Gorbachev came into power, he went up to Leningrad, he mingled with the people. He was a tremendously popular figure. He was, you know, a third the age or, you know, 20 years younger than the series of uh, uh, Soviet leaders who had died, Brezhnev and Dropov Chernyenko. But over time, uh, people tired of Gorbachev. He gave these incredibly long-winded speeches And some of his reforms, while they were popular with progressive elements in the Soviet Union, they were not popular with a huge number of conservative uh, people, both in the Kremlin and around the country. I don't think that Schultz was fully aware of the deterioration of Gorbachev's standing in the Soviet Union as time went on. Philip, as we slip and slide back into another kind of Cold War as relations between the West and Russia disintegrate, increasingly hard to figure out ways of talking in particular to Putin. Should we look back at the the Schultz age, an age of summits, the Reykjavik summit, for example, with a degree of nostalgia? Could those be recreated uh, perhaps to confront now today's problem with Ukraine? You know, one would hope so, but I'm not very optimistic. Uh, And the reason is that those summit meetings, there were four of them between Reagan and Gorbachev that were essentially uh, prepared and orchestrated uh, by Schultz and Shevardnadze. Uh, Those were different, not only a different era, but different personalities. And it seems looking at Putin, that uh, he's not prepared to have any kind of compromise with the United States. Uh, I think, uh, you know, I understand to some extent the resentment that built up in in Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. The United States came to help out up to a certain point, uh, but the expansion of NATO, I think, you know, put people like Putin uh, into a resentful position. mood. Uh, And Putin at this point seems so locked into his hardline position about Ukraine. I I, I don't see a summit meeting that's going to drive up anytime soon that would lead to the kind of agreements that we uh, had in the late 1980s. It's a pity, uh, but I just don't think that uh, Putin is going to 
take that road. Tell me a little bit more about the book, uh, Philip. It's a serious endeavor. I know you quite reliant in some ways on the private papers of Raymond Seitz, um, who uh, gave a number of insights. You put a lot of work into this, a lot of reading. How long did it take you? Well, it took uh, almost a decade, uh, but that was partly because I had to earn a living as I was working on the book. Uh, you know, authors, unless you're getting million dollar advances for a book, you need to find a way to pay the rent as you're working on a book. So I was working at Stanford University in a number of different ways, teaching and other things. I think uh, had I just focused on the book uh, exclusively, it, it would have taken five years. It ended up taking almost 10. And the, the papers of sites, how important were they in terms of, of your work? Critical. Uh, as I said, you know, I think they will be a resource for historians for decades to come. Perhaps the most uh, candid account of uh, the national security disputes and personality conflicts and ideological warfare that was going on in Reagan's first term. Uh, you know, Schultz trusted Seitz, who, by the way, went on to be ambassador to Great Britain uh, after he stepped down as Schultz's executive assistant. And Seitz was not only a, a sort of astute observer of Washington, uh, but he was a great diarist. Uh, you know, he was sort of Boswell to George Schultz. Uh, and uh, he wrote his diary. It's very elegantly written. Uh, and, and very uh, analytical. So it, it really gives you a window. It's as if you're going through those days and nights right at George Schultz's side, uh, you know, and I think it will be invaluable. Uh, not, it was certainly invaluable to me and provides the spine uh, for, I think, a, a revealing inside look of what was going on in the Reagan administration. But I'm sure it will be a valuable resource for historians for years to come. It's interesting that you talk about it as a valuable resource for historians. You spend most of your life not as a historian, but as a foreign correspondent. As you say, you work for the New York Times. My sense is that most foreign correspondents who choose to write a book, particularly about foreign affairs, choose to write novels. Did you ever dabble with the idea of a novel? What is it about history and particularly carefully researched history that would attract an ex-foreign correspondent, a guy who probably stayed up late every night in Moscow bars? <laughs> I would have, but the bars were not open late at night when we were there. Everything shut down at, at nine or Well, 10. in the mornings then, I'm sure you... <laughs> I mean, you didn't spend your life in libraries. There was no uh, Hoover Institute in Moscow, right? No, no. Well, I had a kind of academic bent a bit uh, when I was an undergraduate at Stanford. I majored in history, so that's part of the explanation. Uh, you know, I... I thought a few times in my life about writing fiction uh, in terms of, you know, creating a story uh, in some ways would be a lot easier than doing nonfiction because you can dream it all up. Uh, but I think fiction is hard to do. I think you have to have a knack for it and for creating uh, snappy dialogue that sounds realistic. I wasn't sure I had those talents. So I, I've turned in my book writing life to doing nonfiction, uh, sort of Cold War histories, basically.
And I don't suppose George Schultz would make a particularly good um, romantic, dramatic figure in a novel, would he? He's not fictional material. No, no he was rather bland in some ways. Uh, at the so why do you choose? I mean, why do you spend 10 years of your life researching someone who was rather bland? It, it's, um, it's, uh, it's noble work, Philip. Well... You know, I think it is important. I find the history fascinating. I think George Schultz was a major figure in post-war, uh, you know, world history in the second half of the 20th century. And the end of the bringing the, the Cold War uh, to all but an end uh, was a, a major historical achievement uh, that, that he played a critical role in. So, uh, you know, I think it mattered less to me, uh, you know, that he was uh, sometimes inscrutable, that he wasn't a particularly colorful figure, although, you know, it, late in life after his wife died and he remarried a very vivacious woman, he came much he became much more gregarious and outgoing. But to me, he provided uh, an anchor to delve into the history of a period that I covered for the New York Times. And, and so for me, it was like uh, a journey back into time uh, as a fly on the wall, so to speak, of the things that I'd written about and discovered now in much more detail the inside story of. What does it tell us about Stanford, uh, Philip? You mentioned you were an undergrad there. Um, you, you teach there now. The Hoover Institute uh, at Stanford actually just acquired uh, your papers. Schultz was associated with Stanford. Today, we think of Stanford and tech and Silicon Valley. Uh, and if anything, it's quite a liberal politically university. But in, in the age of George Schultz, it was a much more conservative institution, wasn't it? It was. Uh, it was more conservative. Hoover, which is part of the university, the Hoover Institution, has long been and still is pre predominantly a conservative institution. Uh, and Stanford, back at the time when I was an undergraduate and back when Schultz first came to Stanford and then did his uh, a spell teaching there and then, you know, over the years was affiliated with the university, uh, you know, it, 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 it has long been, I think, a center of, of great scholarship in the humanities. Often that's overshadowed by the tech uh, research that's done at Stanford and the spinoffs like Google. Uh, but, you know, it's it's a profoundly serious intellectual environment where I think he found a home and as have I. Uh, yeah, the, the subtitle of the book, uh, sorry, the subtitle of the book is... Um... Uh, the life and times of George Schultz. The, the times in California have changed as well, haven't they, Philip? They have. And, you know, interestingly, when one thinks about Schultz in, in the context of the world around us today, it, uh, it's important to, to note uh, that he parted company uh, with the Republican Party uh, uh, doctrines on quite a few things over the last decade especially after Donald Trump became president. And so you would find George Schultz <clears throat> over the last decade, as I was dealing with him on a regular basis, uh, organizing roundtable discussions at the Hoover Institutions uh, about things like climate change, 
Uh, he believed in climate change. Uh, he wanted to take uh, steps to deal with it. Uh, for example, he was an advocate of adopting a carbon tax. I sat at those roundtables as an observer, you know, three, four years before uh, COVID hit, listening to uh, doctors and scientists at Stanford talking about the rising threat of a global pandemic. Uh, so he had a knack for looking around the corner uh, and not being a hidebound uh, loyalist to whatever the current flavor of the month was in the Republican Party. Looking or peering, Philip, um, why, why didn't he get behind, for example, a, a third party? It would seem as if uh, power brokers like himself in the Republican Party who had nothing to lose would have recognized that there was no future for him or his ilk in the party itself. Um, did he ever, to you or in his public life, did he ever discuss the possibility of, of creating a third party in America? No, and I think, you know, I think that may have had something to do with his age. I think, you know, he was very disillusioned with Trump. Uh, but by this point, he was in his mid to late 90s. Uh, uh, so, you know, to the day he died, uh, he would, uh, you know, be a proud Republican uh, in the old sense of the Republican Party, if you go back to the Republican Party of Reagan and Eisenhower. Uh, so I, I don't think he had the drive at that point to talk about a third party. I I gave him a very hard time in, in 2016 about, you know, what are you going to do Trump doesn't seem to reflect your values. Uh, you know, are you going to say anything about it? And eventually he and Henry Kissinger issued a statement uh, on the Friday of Labor Day weekend in 2016 when no one's paying attention. Uh, and in it, they said that they would not be voting for either Trump or Hillary Clinton, you know, which was an important signal of dismay over Trump. But they said we are ready to serve uh, and assist either candidate, whoever wins. He was, you know, through the Trump years, reluctant uh, to come out four square with his criticism. Yeah, I have to say, Philip, that I didn't find that very impressive. He had nothing to lose. Why, why release it on a Friday when everyone would ignore it? Why not step up to the plate? I, I couldn't agree more. Finally, and... This is a sort of an odd, almost a bizarre footnote to his life. As I said, like Kennan, he lived to over 100. He somehow got associated. He got sucked into the Theranos scam, the Elizabeth Holmes, uh, who spent, I think, a few weeks or months at Stanford. She wasn't a Stanford grad. Uh, the Holmes seduced, not physically, but uh, I'd, uh, intellectually, she seemed to to bring Schultz into her orbit, get his money, and then also, in some ways, destroy the Schultz family. Uh, what happened with Elizabeth Holmes, Philip? Oh, it was a tragedy. And I think uh, Alex Schultz, uh, George's, one of George's sons and the father of Tyler Schultz, who played a key role in all of this uh, at the sentencing uh, <clears throat> trial moment with uh, Elizabeth Holmes talked uh, about the fact that she had desecrated the Schultz family. I think that's an apt word. Schultz got drawn into her orbit, as you said. I think he was frankly intoxicated with her personally. Uh, 
you know, she was an, is an attractive, was at that point, young woman. Yeah, it's basically uh, a scam artist. I mean, yeah, and he fell for the technology, which I think at the outset he truly believed was a game changer. And then he refused to uh, essentially listen to his grandson Tyler's account of working at Theranos, uh, which Tyler did. And Tyler saw the fraud, but his grandfather wouldn't believe it. Uh, you know, Schultz played a major role in the creation of Theranos. It was basically George Schultz who uh, organized a board of directors for Elizabeth Holmes, all of whom were, you know, esteemed figures in the national security arena, none of whom knew a thing about biomedical issues. Uh, and then it was George Schultz who helped get her on the cover of Forbes and Fortune magazines. Uh, and he, to, to his dying day, he really wouldn't let go of Theranos. I had a very difficult confrontational interview with him about all this. Uh, and I would go through chapter and verse of everything we knew at the time about the fraud and his uh, grandson's heartbreaking effort to get him to intercede on, on the grandson's behalf. And, and during that interview, he would not disown uh, Elizabeth Holmes. It was, it was tragic and heartbreaking to see. Maybe there's a novel there, uh, to be fair to Schultz. I mean, he wasn't the only prominent public figure sucked in. I think Kiss, I'm not sure. I think Kissinger was somehow involved and Rupert Murdoch. So a lot of very powerful men were seduced by Elizabeth Holmes. Finally, Philip, um, remarkable life, remarkable times of George Schultz in the nation's service. Is that the summary? If you were to teach some of your Stanford students about the meaning of George Schultz's life, that he was uh, a servant of the American nation, and he should, uh, ref and, and, and that should be reflected in his life and his example and his spirit? Oh, absolutely. You know, I think uh, when you look at George Schultz's life, uh, you know, there were moments of failure. There were times when he didn't live up to his ideals uh, in public office. But the overarching story of George Schultz's life is uh, 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 not only in the nation's service, uh, but George Schultz was an American patriot and a very old fashioned definition of that word. He fought in World War II as a Marine. He served his nation in various roles. Uh, you know, he was a devoted patriot to the United States and the likes of him uh, seem to be uh, all but vanished these days. He is a sort of quintessentially un isn't he? <laughs> Indeed. Exactly.